Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The following episode contains disturbing descriptions of child abuse and sexual violence and may not be suitable for everyone. It also contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. The toddler with bouncy blonde hair and blue eyes was just one month shy of his third birthday. On Friday, February 12, 1993, his mom dressed him in a gray tracksuit with a pair of white Puma trainers. Over top, he wore a blue windbreaker and a kitty cat scarf. The boy, his mom, along with an aunt and young cousin, went to the Strand, a shopping center in Boodle, England, a town next to Liverpool. The busy toddler liked to explore on his own. At times, he ran ahead of his mom, pulling clothes off racks and grabbing candy from shelves. Just past 3.30 p.m., the mom grabbed her son's hand for the last time. She turned into a butcher shop in the mall to buy some meat for supper. And she fleetingly let go of James's hand. He was running around, being, you know, playful. He was nearly three, as little boys do. And uh, he went out of her sight while she was paying for her uh, food. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. In this episode, we look back at a shocking crime that still reverberates 30 years later. This is Innocence Lost, the abduction and murder of James Bulger. After paying for her purchases, 25-year-old Denise Bulger quickly realized that her son James was missing, and she ran to the mall's security office. Missing children were nearly a daily occurrence at the shopping center. But 30 minutes later, when there was still no sign of James, the police were called. Officers searched on foot and by car. They looked through the mall, in the surrounding streets, and around the nearby Leeds-Liverpool Canal. Eventually, a police officer on a motorcycle drove through the neighborhood using a loudspeaker as he appealed for help to find the little boy. Over the next several hours, as news of the disappearance spread, dozens of people called the police station to report possible sightings. Police spoke to a woman who told them she'd been walking on a bridge over the canal that afternoon when she looked down and saw a little boy standing on a path below crying. She assumed he was with another group of kids who were further up the path. But now she was having second thoughts. Perhaps it was little James she saw. Police thought so too, and they worried that the boy might have fallen into the canal and drowned. At around 1 a.m. the next day, nine hours after James was reported missing, police began looking at security video footage from the mall. The first camera they checked overlooked the exit nearest to the canal, and almost immediately, they got a hit. A blurry time-lapse video showed James in his blue windbreaker and white Puma trainers being led away from the mall by two older boys. The footage wasn't great, and to the officers viewing the tape, it was hard to see the boys clearly. They looked about 13 or 14 years old, but investigators weren't sure. What they did know was that James hadn't wandered away and gotten lost. He'd been abducted. The news was shocking. Even veteran detectives couldn't believe what they were dealing with. At a news conference on Saturday night, 24 hours after his disappearance, police released the images showing little James being led away by the hand. The toddler's mom, Denise, wept as she begged for her son's return. 
To his abductor, she said, if you've got my baby, just bring him back. Police appealed to the public to come forward with any information about James or his abductors. Detective Chief Inspector Jeff McDonald speculated that perhaps the boys were too frightened to come forward. Maybe they took James away innocently as part of a game and events had overtaken them. But soon, police realized that there was nothing innocent about what happened to James. On Sunday afternoon, a group of young boys burst into the Walton Lane Police Station in North Liverpool, about two miles from the Strand Shopping Centre. The boys were screaming and shouting, ringing the bell at the front desk, trying to get someone's attention. They told the first officer who came out they'd made a disturbing discovery near the railway line that ran behind the police station. Three officers ran to the back of the building and scrambled up an embankment. Almost immediately, they saw the remains of little James Bulger. It was clear that he had been struck by a train. But later, when a post-mortem examination was performed, it was determined he was already dead when that happened. The investigation led to a horrific discovery. James had been tortured in unimaginable ways, then beaten to death, his body left on the railroad tracks. When news broke that James Bulger's body had been found, the local community was stunned and angered. Feelings are running high in the working-class neighbourhood of Liverpool, and crowds try to get at suspects and witnesses being brought in for questioning. And next to the spot where young Jamie met his abductors, a sad pile of memorial flowers expressed a nation's grief and anger. Meantime, as police continued their search for the abductors, they received more security video footage from a local business. And this one provided a different perspective for investigators. It was becoming clear that the boys who led James away from the mall weren't teenagers. They were younger, possibly as young as 10 years old. By Wednesday, five days after the abduction, police had interviewed and cleared 55 possible suspects, and they didn't feel any closer to finding the killers. The eerie, grainy video showing the toddler being led away by the hand was played over and over on TV channels throughout England and around the world. On the evening of February 17th, Detective Inspector Jim Fitzsimmons was working late, going over evidence in the case, searching desperately for answers, when he finally got a break. A woman called the tip line to say her mother's friend had a son who had skipped school on Friday and came home with paint on his jacket. More importantly, she said he looked like one of the boys captured in the surveillance video. By this point, investigators had received thousands of tips, many of which seemed promising but led nowhere. But something about this call intrigued Fitzsimmons, and ultimately, he decided to look into it further. They found out where the boy went to school and then called his headmistress at home. She told police, yes, the boy and a friend were absent from school Friday and confirmed that they were both just 10 years old. Their names were John Venables and Robert Thompson. The next morning, Venables and Thompson were arrested at their homes in Walton, Liverpool. When Venables was told he was a suspect in the murder of James Bulger, he grabbed his mother, crying and yelling. He said, I don't want to go to prison, Mum. I didn't kill the baby. At Thompson's house, investigators collected his school uniform. They found his dress shoes in a bag. And even to the naked eye, it appeared they were spattered with blood. Venables and Thompson were taken to separate police stations for questioning. 
Initially, Venables denied even being at the Strand on Friday, February 12th. Meanwhile, Thompson seemed unafraid, even joked with officers. When they asked him if he had any hobbies, Thompson laughed and answered, skipping school. He quickly admitted that he and Venables had been at the Strand the day James disappeared. He told officers they first spotted the toddler walking with his mum, and it was Venables who called him over and walked him out of the mall. Police then went back to Venables, who was accompanied by his mother in the small interrogation room, to ask him if that was true. He said that the two of you were in the strand and that you saw the little boy. We never. We never. That the God's honest truth? God's honest truth. I'm, I'm telling you that we never. He was too scared. He was probably too scared. As police continued to question Venables, however, he eventually admitted they had lured James away from his mom. Journalist and author David James Smith says the boys told police that after leaving the mall, they slowly walked James two miles toward Walton Village. They'd say that they considered pushing him in the canal. They'd pick him up, drop him. He's hurt. Um, I think they put his hood up. He's wearing a sort of anorak with a hood. They put a hood over his head to cover the mark. And, and then they take him on this long walk towards the area uh, where both boys uh, are living. They ended up at the tracks, but each boy blamed the other for killing James. Regardless, police had enough evidence to lay charges. On February 20th, 1993, John Venables and Robert Thompson were charged with the abduction and murder of James Bulger, along with an attempted abduction of another toddler on that fateful day they had skipped school and went to the Strand. They'd been sort of shoplifting, messing around, being cheeky, and trying to attract the attention of a, of a child, perhaps to abduct them. So there were a couple of other, you know, sort of trial abductions before this one occurred. At the age of 10, Venables and Thompson were the youngest children to face murder charges in Britain in over 100 years. And their arrest ignited a storm of soul-searching and finger-pointing. Everything from bad parenting to television and movie violence was blamed for creating a society so horrible that children would kill other children. This terrible murder has triggered a wave of revulsion and a genuine fear about what seems to be happening to Western society. It's a fear burned into a nation's consciousness by the pictures of an innocent, trusting two-year-old being led away to a terrible fate. In the UK, the age of criminal responsibility when a child can be charged with a criminal offense was in the 90s and still is today 10 years of age. But at the time, the law stated if the child is between the ages of 10 and 14, it's up to the prosecution to prove at trial that the child was aware that what they were doing was wrong. To put that in context, in Canada, the age of criminal responsibility is 12. Anyone under that age cannot be charged with a criminal offense because they are considered too young to be held criminally liable for their actions. When Venables and Thompson made their first court appearance in Boodle, England on February 22nd, it was a complete mob scene. A crowd of 250 angry people gathered outside the magistrate's court first thing in the morning. Expecting problems, the police had actually delivered Venables and Thompson to the court before dawn in a windowless police van. 
The crowd that included mothers with children, seniors, and students was undeterred. They waited patiently for the two accused to leave court. Just before 11 a.m., police motorbikes lined up on the road in front of the court. Officers on foot moved in front of the crowd, and then a gate opened. As two blue vans drove out of a passageway, the crowd erupted. A mother holding a baby screamed, murderers. A man sprinted towards the vans. Reaching one, he thumped on the side of it until a police officer tackled him and sent the man flying into a rose bush. Some in the crowd began throwing stones, others threw eggs. When six people were arrested, the crowd turned on the police and eventually reporters too. A local politician appealed for calm, pointing out that the violence outside the courthouse wouldn't help James Bulger's family or anyone else. David James Smith, who wrote a book about the case called The Sleep of Reason, says the murder occurred at a time when there was growing concern about crime in the UK, and in particular, crime by young people. And that was the kind of mood at the time of these, you know, young people who, who were out of control. And as a society, we must be doing something wrong. And uh, a politician at the time said we should condemn a little more and understand a little less. And uh, that, was the, that was the kind of punitive mood, I think, that was around when this happened. The other thing that was shocking to many observers was the fact that James Bulger and his abductors were seen by upwards of 38 people during their meandering two-hour walk from the Strand to the railway tracks in Walton. Like the woman who police spoke to early in the investigation, who said she saw a little boy crying on the path near the canal. She saw that he was with a group of other kids on the path and assumed he would be okay. One of the things that I was struck by when I first went to Liverpool myself was that how common a sight it was to see little children out on the street in the, in the charge of, of older children. I guess, so it wasn't that unusual, you know, so uh, families under pressure, families in poverty and, you know, get the children out from under their feet. And they're, so they're, the children are out the streets of their playground. And so it wasn't that unusual a sight. Many of the people who saw James with his abductors noticed that he was distressed and crying. Others noticed injuries on his face and his head, but just about everyone assumed he was in the care of an older brother or brothers. There was one woman, however, who approached the older boys and asked if they knew the toddler. They told her they had just found him and eventually convinced her they would take him to the police station. On March 1st, 1993, two and a half weeks and a lifetime since James was murdered, a crowd of 1,000 shivered in silence outside a church in Kirkby where his funeral took place. Inside, 350 family and friends gathered for the heartbreaking service. At the front of the church sat a tiny coffin beside a large wreath with a ribbon which read, James, our beautiful baby son. When it was over, James was laid to rest in a private burial, his favorite teddy bear tucked inside the coffin. The hand-wringing and chest-beating that had taken over Britain was lost on Denise and Ralph Bulger. Their broken hearts and minds were consumed only with the loss of their baby boy. Five months after the burial, the trial for John Venables and Robert Thompson began. On November 1st, 1993, the now 11-year-old stood trial. At the time, their names had not been released to the public. They were only referred to in court and in the media as Child A and Child B. The exact details of James's death had also not been fully made public until the trial. Court heard in detail what happened to James Bulger, and to be honest, they are too graphic and disturbing to share with you. 
James's 26-year-old father, Ralph Bulger, listened from a seat in the courtroom. He looked gray and almost sick as the most horrendous aspects of his son's injuries were recounted for the jury. In the end, Ralph only attended two days of testimony, the ordeal too upsetting. James's mom, who was eight months pregnant, chose to stay home and did not attend until the day of the verdict. The two accused sat in specially raised seats in the dock between a pair of Liverpool social workers. They were so small that they couldn't see over the bar. There was like a brass rail of the dock. And so they had to build a platform for them to sit on, on chairs. They were sitting, they had social workers sitting with them. And, uh, but of course it had this, so it was, it was ostensibly for them to, to see what was going on, but it had the effect of making them like they were on the show. It was like a, you know, people say a court is like a theater and they were, it was like they were on stage. Neither seemed to be able to follow what was going on in court. They looked around the room and fidgeted in their seats. The public gallery was packed throughout the three-week trial, attended by curious onlookers as well as family members of James and the two accused. John Venable's parents sat slumped forward in their seats next to the dock, their eyes on the ground in front of them as they listened to evidence from witnesses who saw James being mistreated by the two older boys during the long walk from the Strand Shopping Centre. Venables and Thompson were not called to testify, but the jury was played audio from their police interrogations. Their small, squeaky voices filled the courtroom as they admitted to snatching James, but denied killing him. In the end, there was enough forensic evidence against the boys, and the jury found John Venables and Robert Thompson guilty of abducting and murdering James Bulger. They were unable to reach a majority verdict on the attempted abduction charge, so it was left on the file and the jury was discharged. The judge overseeing the case told the 11-year-old boys, whose faces were streaked with tears, that what they had done was an act of unparalleled evil and barbarity. He said, quote, In my judgment, your conduct was both cunning and very wicked. The judge also said it wasn't for him to pass judgment on the boys' upbringing, but he suspected that exposure to violent video films may in part be an explanation. Evidence at the trial suggested that more than 400 videos had been brought into the home of John Venables over the last couple of years, 64 of which contained violence or soft pornographic material. In particular, the jury heard that three weeks before the crime, Venables' father rented the movie Child's Play 3, which shows Chucky, an evil doll dressed in toddler's clothing, being killed by two boys on a ghost train. It seemed everyone, including the judge, was desperate to find a reason why two young, seemingly normal kids would take part in such a horrific crime. Author David James Smith says while no one will ever know the logic behind what they did, there is no denying that both boys were being raised in highly dysfunctional environments. He says Robert Thompson grew up in a rough home and was one of seven boys. He was physically and sexually abused by his older brothers. When Thompson was six, his abusive father walked out, leaving his mom to care for the kids on her own. And uh, in the period leading up to when the offence occurred, when he was 10 years old, his mother was in a you know, very poor state and she'd been suffering from depression and medicated and she was self-medicating, you know, leaving the family, going to the pub, sitting in the pub drinking, neglecting the welfare of her children. Violence and alcohol were also a part of John Venable's life. His parents were, they had quite a conflictual relationship. They, they separated 
and uh, I think John sort of slipped between the cracks a bit. I think the police had been called to his <laughs> his mother's home because the mother had gone out and left the children unattended. However, it seemed the focus was on violent videos, and the comments set off a fierce debate among the public and legislators. Within minutes of the judge's remarks, Home Secretary Michael Howard came under pressure from MPs to investigate the impact of violence on TV and videos and how it may have been a factor in the murder of James Bulger. As for sentencing, following the guilty verdicts, Venables and Thompson were ordered detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, which is the normal sentence given to a minor convicted of a serious crime in place of a life sentence. It is then up to the judge to recommend when they could be eligible for release. In this case, the trial judge recommended that Venables and Thompson should be held in a secure children's home for at least eight years. That was bumped up to 10 years by the trial judge's superior, the chief justice. But then following an outcry from James Bulger's parents who wanted the boys to be sent away for life, pressure was placed on Britain's home office to step in. Over 250,000 people signed a petition supported by the Sun newspaper calling on Home Secretary Michael Howard to give the boys a longer minimum sentence. And in July 1994, Howard responded by imposing a minimum sentence of 15 years, which meant Venables and Thompson would not be considered for release until they were 25 years old. But the matter was not over yet. Three years later, in 1997, the House of Lords ruled that the Home Secretary had illegally and unfairly increased their sentences. The House of Lords upheld an earlier ruling that Michael Howard was inappropriately swayed by the massive outcry and petition. Then, in 1999, author David James Smith says the European Court of Human Rights weighed in on the matter. It ruled that the boys' human rights had been breached because they had not received a fair hearing. They were too young to instruct their lawyers, to really tell the lawyers, you know, what, what, what they'd done or hadn't done and how, you know, so as adults, if we're, if we're accused of a crime, we have lawyers to represent us and we can tell them what, what we say we did and then the lawyers put our point uh, uh, across in court. But those two boys, of course, they were far too young to, uh, to do that. In their ruling, the European court said the trial was also unfair because of how Venables and Thompson were treated. Writing the glare of publicity was distressing and frightening, and not enough had been done to accommodate the fact that they were only 10 years old. I should mention, too, that although the boys' identities were protected during the trial, the judge, in a controversial decision, released their names at the end of the proceedings, citing public safety concerns. The European court also ruled that the decision by Home Secretary Michael Howard to set a minimum sentence of 15 years violated the European Convention of Human Rights, which requires sentencing to be carried out by an impartial tribunal and not an elected politician. This had been going on now for six years, and each time a decision was made in the case, it was like reopening an old wound for the family of James Bulger and the public who had grieved along with them. The pressure was too much for Ralph and Denise Bulger. They grew apart and in 1995 divorced. But they each continued to fight for justice in the memory of their young son. In June 2001, the wound was reopened yet again, when John Venables and Robert Thompson were called before a parole board panel at a secret location to determine if they were no longer a risk to the public. 
The previous fall, the chief justice had reinstated the original eight-year minimum sentence, paving the way for their release. Venables and Thompson were both just shy of their 19th birthdays and had not seen each other since they appeared in court eight years earlier. They had been housed separately in high-security youth detention centers in North England. During that time, both had gone from barely literate to studying and completing high school exams with good grades. The panel heard that Thompson had grown into a shy young man with a strong interest in design and fashion. Once, when he was given a project to create an object of beauty, he made a wedding dress, doing all the cutting and sewing himself. It took several years of therapy, but Thompson finally fully admitted his role in the killing of James Bulger. He told the parole board he had lied about his involvement after being overwhelmed by the public reaction to the crime. And he said, quote, I am deeply ashamed of what I did and having played a part in this horrible murder. As for John Venables, the parole board panel heard that he had become an avid reader who enjoyed writing and wanted to go to university. Venables, who admitted his part in the murder early on, said he had developed a deeper understanding of what he did and was remorseful. A few days later, the parole board announced that Venables and Thompson would be released into a halfway house to begin the next phase of their lives. They recently met with a panel of psychiatrists and judges to determine if they were still a threat to society. The parole board determined they were remorseful for their crimes and that releasing them with restrictions was appropriate. Both were given new identities, and a lifetime court injunction meant that the media was prohibited from printing any photos of Venables and Thompson that predate the murder. Their release and the protection of their identity fed into a lynch mob mentality by some in the public and certain media, in particular tabloid newspapers, which seemed to promote or at least condone vigilante justice. After their release was announced, a headline in the Sunday Express proclaimed, We'll show Bulger faces, and offered £50,000 for pictures of Venables and Thompson. News of the World ran a story with a bold headline that said, Bulger killer dead in four weeks, a prediction by Venables' mum, who was convinced her son would be tracked down by vigilantes. But surprisingly, both managed to blend back into society, beginning a new life after putting the horrors of their childhood crime behind them. That is, until March 2010, nine years later, when John Venables was returned to prison for violating the terms of his release. It took three months before the public was told that Venables had been charged with downloading and distributing child pornography. It was shocking news, because during the trial, it had been widely assumed by police, journalists, and even psychologists that Robert Thompson was the ringleader, the bad guy. Some even called him a psychopath. People were now rethinking that assessment. David James Smith, however, wasn't as surprised. I was sort of swimming against the tide on this. So many of the observers of the trial, the police officers, journalists and others uh, saw the two boys and considered that Robert Thompson was the more likely kind of ringleader in the, in the incident. And I always thought that that was John Venables. It seemed to me that in all the interactions with adults on the way to the scene of the killing, that he was the one who took the lead. He was the, you know, the most kind of devious in the stories that he told. And he just, all the information from their school records was that he was the more disturbed of the two boys. 27-year-old Venables pleaded guilty to the child pornography charges and was sentenced to two years in prison. He was paroled in 2013, 
but sent to jail again in 2018 after pleading guilty to having more than 1,000 child pornography images. Venables was denied parole in 2020 and remains behind bars at the time of this recording. However, he is eligible for another parole hearing, which could happen at any time. James Bulger's mom, who is now remarried and goes by Denise Fergus, remains vocal in her belief that Venables should be kept locked up for the rest of his life. This past February marked 30 years since Denise and her ex-husband Ralph Bulger lost their two-year-old son James. And for them, the heartache remains. David James Smith says the same goes for the people of Liverpool and the rest of England, who still remember clearly the fuzzy images of young James being led away by the hand by two slightly older boys. I often refer to it as an, un, an unhealed wound in the national psyche, you know, that it's something that sits there. And is this what our children are capable of? In the years that followed the shocking crime, British politicians of both main parties looked for ways to get tougher on crime, especially crime by young people. In 1998, the Labour government, headed by Tony Blair, made it easier to prosecute children between the ages of 10 and 14. The prosecution no longer had to prove the accused knew their actions were wrong. Four years later, Blair introduced new police targets that saw a huge increase in the number of young people in trouble with the law for the first time. Today, England, Wales, and Northern Ireland remain some of the only nations in the Western world to criminalize children under the age of 12. Criminologist Ross Little told The Guardian in 2023, the UK has become a bit of an international outlier in its approach to children, still influenced heavily by the murder of James Bulger. But he said it might be time to move on. Little said, quote, We can recognize that it was a terrible, tragic case, but perhaps it's time for a slightly wider debate in relation to how we treat children in the criminal justice system. Thanks for listening to this very difficult story about the abduction and murder of James Bulger. And thank you to author and journalist David James Smith for taking time to talk about the case. His book, The Sleep of Reason, was extremely helpful in putting together this episode. I'll put info about the book and Smith in the show notes. If you have a suggestion for a topic, I'd love to hear from you. Just send me a message on social media. I'm on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. Another option, you can send me an email at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Gonzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 